How is your humility? I know that's probably not a question you've been asked recently. It's a bit strange, but I really do want to ask that. How's your humility? Are you a humble person? And you need to be careful how you answer that, right? Because if you're sitting there and you're like, well, I think I'm a pretty good, humble person. I'd like to think that I'm a humble person. Aren't by that act you patting yourself on the back? And by that saying, I'm not a humble person, right? It's confusing. As soon as you start to think that you're humble, you're not actually humble. It's a confusing thing. It's a strange thing. It's defined, humility is defined by Merriam-Webster Dictionary as freedom from pride or arrogance. And I'd like to put to you this morning that if you're a human, you struggle with humility. Why is that? Well, I'd say it's, it's because it goes against the grain of our sin nature. Humility goes against the grain of our sin nature. What do I mean by that? Well, as a Christian, I believe that this book is true. And the things that it tells me, this Bible tells me, it tells me that there was a God who created everything, that that's where we came from, that God created a perfect planet. And at that time, there didn't need to be a conversation about pride or humility because it really wasn't a a struggle against humans. It wasn't a struggle that we dealt with. But as sin was injected into the story, which was pretty early on, chapter 3 of Genesis to be exact, when sin came in, it actually bent and distorted everything. And one of the things that it distorted was the way that we operate. Pride was injected into the human species. And since then, we have struggled with humility. C.S. Lewis, speaking to pride in mere Christianity, said this, There is one vice, pride, of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. In the text, we're going to be challenged to be people who aren't full of pride, but are actually full of humility and love. And you're going to see that as we turn to John chapter 13. I want to ask you to turn there with me. John 13. If you're new around here, we've been journeying through the book of John. It's taking us some time. We're trying to not rush through it too much, but there's a lot in there. So we're up to John 13. And as you're turning there, I want to give you just a little bit of context for what's going on. So two main things. Firstly, this is the Passover feast, okay? And the Passover is this like incredibly significant festival for the Jewish people. In the Old Testament times, they had three major festivals. And then in New Testament times, by the time of Jesus, there was actually five major festivals in the year that they would celebrate. But this was the big daddy of all of them, the Passover. This was the most important of all of them. And so it's an important time when they're celebrating their freedom from slavery. And so they're gathered together, and that's kind of the context, this special Passover meal that Jesus is having with his disciples. Now, the second thing I want to point out is that a lot of you, when you think of the Passover meal, what you picture is probably something like this. It's Da Vinci's Last Supper type meal, okay? And I just want to, there's so many things wrong with this picture that I'd love to point out, but uh, I just want to point out a few things, okay? Um, The main thing that I want to point out is that they're not sitting around a table. They were reclining at a table. They didn't have chairs and tables or glasses by that matter. But anyway, they're sitting 
At, they're not sitting, sorry, they're reclining at this table. And what that meant is they're lying on their sides around this table that's set for this special meal. And what that means is that, you know, one person is kind of like in towards the table with their, their legs out behind them, which meant that you kind of sat close to the chest of the person next to you. Your head was close to the next person. And it's important to realize that because we're going to get to see an interaction between Peter, John, and Jesus in the text that is much better explained when we're not picturing this, okay? So I want you to kind of scratch that out of your mind, if you can, as we read. So let's go to the text. Let's read John 13. We'll start in verse 1. We're going to cover the whole chapter, but we'll kind of talk through some of the parts and summate some of the sections. So we'll read a portion and go through it like that. Verse 1, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now by the time, the, sorry, now by the time of the supper, the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. If you read on, what you'll find out happens next is Peter then says, No, 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 Jesus, you can't do that. I don't want you to wash my feet. And Jesus says to him, Hey, no, I need to wash your feet if you're going to have any part with me. To which, what does Peter then say? He says, wash all of me, you know, like wash my hands, wash my head. And Jesus then replies, no, you don't understand. He's saying, this is like symbolic. I love how actually the message paraphrase puts Jesus' reply. He says, this is Jesus speaking in the message paraphrase. My concern, you understand, is holiness, not hygiene. Right? He's saying, hey, Peter, you don't understand. And he says, hey, I'll make you clean symbolically by this. And then he goes on and says, but one of you is not clean. And the moment gets really serious because he's actually talking about Judas. He knows that Judas is about to betray him. Let's pick back up the story in verse 12. Verse 12 says this, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. That This is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Jesus then goes on and clarifies a few things. Specifically, he goes on to clarify his betrayal. It's obviously weighing on him. And he says to the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And that kind of creates a stir amongst them, right? The disciples are like, who is it? What's going on? It mystifies them. And that actually leads to a funny interaction we're not going to read in the text, but basically Peter kind of signals across to John, who's right there next to Jesus. He's like, find out who it is. And, uh, and so John has his head there resting against Jesus as they're like right there reclining at the table. And so John whispers to Jesus and says, who's going to betray you? And Jesus whispers back and says, basically, it's going to be the one that I take this bread, dip it in the cup and give it to. So he takes this piece of bread dips it in a cup, and he gives it to who? Judas. And as he does that, there's this incredibly scary verse in verse 27 where it tells us that Satan entered Judas. It goes on and uh, tells us some more 
of what happens. But as basically, as that happens, Judas then gets up and leaves. And Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And nobody at the table seems to understand what just happened. Even John, who had this insider information, they kind of are confused and they think, well, he's going to, you know, take care of paying a bill or feeding somebody who's poor. They're trying to figure out what's going on, but they kind of move on and move past what just happened. What does happen then from, from that point on is Jesus has this conversation with the 11 disciples, and this conversation is actually going to continue on until chap- the end of chapter 17 of the book of John. And what we have in these next few verses and chapters is this incredible passage of Scripture between Jesus and the 11 faithful disciples. Let's read a little bit of what he says next. Verse 33, let's pick back up there. He says to them, Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I have told the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I tell you. I give you a new command. Love one another, just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Peter again seems to get caught up, and he's caught up this time in what Jesus said at the first. He's like, wait a sec, where you're going, I can't come. He's like, Lord, I'd never deny you, I'd never leave you. And Jesus simply says to him, hey, before the rooster crows, before this day is, is dawned, the next day, you're going to deny me three times. And that closes out the chapter. So what is this passage all about? In my summation, I would say that it's an absurd picture of King Jesus serving his disciples as he prepares to serve them in an even greater way. It's an absurd picture. I would say that it actually is oxymoronic. Now, think back to English class. What is an oxymoron? An oxymoron is a linguistic device, an English language device that we use where you take two seemingly contradictory concepts and you bring them together, right? You take these things that just don't make sense usually and mash them together. And that's exactly what we have going on here in this text. You see, Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The book of John has made that emphatically clear, especially chapter 1, right? It tells us that Jesus is God incarnate, that he is the creator, that he is the son of God. And so here we have the king of kings, lord of lords, doing what? Washing his disciples, his students' feet? Like that just shouldn't compute in our minds. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And when you think of washing feet, don't just think of average Western person take a shower every day or at least every couple of days' feet. What we're talking about here is some pretty stinky, nasty feet. We're talking about people who wore sandals and walked along roads that are full of mud and dirt and manure. Those are the type of feet that he's washing. We see kind of some of this tension in the text. I want to show you. Verse 3. Let's go back there. Jesus knew, listen to this. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. Jesus understood completely who he was. He's got his identity figured out, which is good for us. It's good he knew who he was. So he's there. He's figured out who he was. But I want you to see how absurd the next verse, few words are. Because what does it say in verse 4? He knows who he is. And then verse 4, so he got up from the supper ta- table, laid aside his robe. And then it goes on and tells us exactly what he does. That so doesn't make a lot of sense. 
The King of Kings, Lord of Lords, washing his disciples' feet. You should not be able to read this passage and think, well, that makes sense. You see, Jesus had every right to not be humble. He had every right to not be humble. And I just want to challenge those of you who especially have a church background and have heard this story a bajillion times. Don't look at this and take it for face value. I want you to be shocked a little bit like maybe even Peter was shocked. What did Peter say to Jesus? If you look at his words in verse 8, he says, You will never wash my feet, ever. Peter seems to be the only one who kind of sees, hey, this isn't right. Like, this shouldn't be the way that it is. I was trying to picture in my mind ways that I could illustrate for you just how preposterous this is. And so I'm going to give you an absolutely crazy example, but here it is. You guys, a lot of you know that I like to ride my mountain bike. And especially in the summer when I go mountain biking, my riding gear is absolutely putrid. My wife is saying a hearty amen right now. Um, It's gross. I sweat a lot and I've got dust and mud and just nastiness all over my gear and it just stinks. So I want you to picture this with me. Imagine that for some crazy reason, the Queen of England comes over and visits me. But not only does she visit me, she decides in the middle of her visit with me that she would like to take my dirty riding gear and wash it for me. How stupid is that? Like nonsensical, right? Like that doesn't make sense. That's the grossest thing that I can think of that she would do for me. And I want you to see that even more nonsensical is this story. This is the king of the universe, way above the queen of England, and he's washing his disciples, his students' feet. It's nonsensical, just as nonsensical as humility itself. You see, humility doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we like the sound of it, We like the look of it, but we don't like how it feels to actually do it. In a lot of ways, we like the way it looks, but we don't like the way it tastes. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Maybe you can think of a time where you were like, ooh, that looks really yummy. And then you grab it, take a bite of it, and discover, no, that's not yummy. That's humility, right? In a lot of ways. It's nonsensical. It's just crazy to us. You see, our culture likes to acknowledge humility as a good thing, and yet our culture at large doesn't really know how to do it. Humility is rarely talked about, rarely encouraged, and for the most part, our world seems to be devoid of any good examples of it. Think about the people who are paraded in the media and the news in front of us. Are they humble people? No, not at all. So when we do have a good example, like we do here in this text, we don't really know what to do with it. Well, I can tell you what we need to do with the example. Jesus made it emphatically clear. Let's see what he says. Verse 14. Let's go back there. Reread it with me. So, this is Jesus speaking. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Who is Jesus speaking to? His disciples. If you're a Christ follower, what are you? You're a disciple. What's, what's, what are we being told in the text? We are absolutely called to follow Jesus' example of humility. There's no getting around that. You know, I think one of the main reasons that people like Jesus, like if you talk to somebody about Jesus, even if they're not a Christian or even if they believe in another, in another faith system, most people for the general rule like Jesus, right? Why do you think that is? I would argue that one of the reasons that a lot of people like Jesus is because he epitomized humility. 
He really did. He was such a humble person, and because of that, people liked him. Not only did he show humility, he commanded humility of us as his disciples. So let's think about this word humble a little bit more. Humility, what is it? It's, it's a posture. It's a space in which we exist. For example, I could put two people up here on the stage right next to each other, and if they didn't say anything and if they didn't do anything, you may not know that person A is like a really, really humble and kind and loving person, and person B is an absolutely arrogant and prideful person. You wouldn't know that, right? It's a posture before it becomes evidenced by our words or by our actions. So if it's a posture, something that's going on in our heart, where does that posture itself come from? What's the fuel? What's the motive for somebody to be humble? Well, again, I think Jesus answers that for the that for us in the text. And so I want you to skip back to me, back with me, sorry, to verse 34. Verse 34, he says this, Jesus, to his disciples again, I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, Jesus paints this beautiful picture of humility by serving his disciples, and then he very clearly tells them that it's love that's the fuel for this. You see, true humility is a byproduct of love. True humility, and I'm talking about true humility, not fake humility. You guys know what I'm talking about, fake humility? It's not like, hey, we've got some celebrity in front of a bunch of poor people. Is the camera rolling? Okay, have you got this? Okay, let me serve these people. That's fake humility. We actually probably have more examples of fake humility than we have ones of genuine, love-filled, true humility. We're talking about true humility, and I would say that that is absolutely a byproduct of love. Humility and, and, and love are bound together. You cannot separate them. We see that also mentioned back in verse 1. If you go back to verse 1, It tells us there that, you know, Jesus is there for the Passover, his time's come. And then talking about his disciples, he says, having loved, sorry, the text says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, if you look at the footnote on that verse, to the end, what it's saying there is that he loved them completely or he loved them always. I grew up hearing this text, this particular text in the old NIV translation. And the way that it would put it is really beautiful. It basically says this, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Isn't that rich? He showed them the full extent of his love. How did he do that? By washing their feet. So the call to humility is is really there. It's a genuine call. But the call to humility is really what? A call to love. So you may be sitting there this morning, you're like, okay, great, Harley, good deal. I'm called to love, got it, let's go. But I want to go back with you to the original question I asked. I asked, how's your humility? But if humility is a byproduct of love, I want to ask this, how's your love? And when I say, how's your love, I'm not saying, how's your love for yourself? We're experts at that, right? What I'm talking about is a love for your fellow men, or as Jesus puts it in this text, how's your love for the one another's around you? And if I was to sit here and to give you an honest answer this morning for myself, how's my love? The answer would sound something like this, fickle at best. My love that I produce by myself is fickle at best. 
I've proved over and over to myself that when I try to love by my own efforts and by my own energy, I fail. I'm like a sail with no wind in it or a a fire with no fuel in it. We cannot and will not love the way we are commanded by ourselves. Why is this? Why is there this struggle? Why, Why do I struggle to love? Why can't I love the way that I'm called to? Obviously, there's a call to love. How can, why can't I do that? We fail to love because there is a perpetual war being waged for our love on the battlefield of our hearts. Now, this isn't some flowery language that I just pulled to make this sermon sound nice. This language of war is actually all the way through the text, all the way through the scriptures. Let me give you a couple of examples. James 4 verse 1 says this, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? So instead of craving to love and to serve somebody else, I crave to love and to serve myself. There's a war going on inside of me. Sounds really similar to the language of Romans 7, 22 and 23. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law. That's good. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. There is a struggle, guys. Whether you're a Christian, you're not a Christian. The struggle is real. The struggle is there. And what this war sees us doing is loving and worshiping ourselves instead of loving God and loving people as we've been commanded to. And we see this war being waged in the lives of two specific characters in this text, namely Peter and Judas. Judas is a sad case because the war is pretty much over and done. In Peter, there's a real wrestling back and forth. You see it being played out. We cannot love fully. We cannot be humble the way we're called to because of this war over our hearts. Now, some of you may be sitting there this morning, you're like, Holly, this sounds a bit dramatic. This is maybe a little bit over the top. I'm not really that bad of a person, or I'm a pretty loving person. If that's the space you're sitting in, as you're sitting there and hopefully being honest with yourself, my question to you would be, really? Really? Have you dug into the motives of your kind or loving actions lately? You see, when I go digging into the motives of my best actions, often I find, and I don't like to do the digging, but when I do, I find the nastiest things. For example, I do something kind for my neighbor, and I'd like to get up here and tell you, yeah, I'm a good neighbor. I did this for my neighbor, and this is how it worked, and I, I, I showed him the love of Christ. But the reality is, I probably did that, yes, hopefully a little bit for Christ, but also, if I'm really honest... I did it because I wanted him to think well of me or to think that I'm a good person. That's just one example. But what I'm trying to show you is the corruption, this war that goes deep into this battle for humility, this battle for love. You see, Peter, this is playing out in Peter. Peter in this text, what does he say? He says, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. What does that sound like? Humility, kind of. But if you go digging, I would absolutely put a bet on the fact that the motive for him saying that was pride. He's saying, hey, you other disciples don't get this, but I do. Jesus isn't worthy to wash my feet. Right? It's insidious, but it's there. 
The sin in us is messed up. And this sin that is eating away at us, that's warring within us, will ultimately lead to death. We don't need any better example of that than what's played out in this city this week. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. We've had this crazy last few weeks with this bummer going around, doing all these horrible things. And what I would put to you is that depravity, that sin, that brokenness that came obviously to an ultimate end in this young man's life, and I say this carefully, but hear me, is the same depravity that wages war against us. Sobering. So sobering to think of that. The reason you and I cannot love, the reason you and I cannot be humble is because of that same depravity. So I want to ask you to acknowledge your shortcomings this morning, specifically in the areas of humility and love. And by doing that, I feel like we've kind of buried ourselves in a corner at this point of the message. Because what we've said is humility is good, but it's really hard. We've said, well, even though it's hard, we're called to it. That's what God's commanded us to do, to be humble. And then we said, okay, well, if we're called to it, how, how do we do it? Well, it's got to be motivated by love. But then we say, well, if it's motivated by love, I, I don't love. I struggle to love. Because of this war that's being waged inside of myself. And so as you hopefully feel some of the weight and the tension of that, My hope is that the dark truth would now make the light seem all the brighter. That the shadow that we've been building ourselves under now would be proved to be, yes, a shadow, but the light even brighter. The light comes in the form of this. I want you to think back to the Passover. The Passover was a time that the Jewish people would celebrate every year their freedom from slavery. It was kind of the... Exodus 12 time, when they would like think back over what happened during that period of time. You see, what was happening was God's chosen and special people were enslaved to this evil king, Pharaoh. And as they were there in this struggle, they cried out to God and God sent Moses. Moses came and God did all these crazy miracles through him, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, as we talked about last week. Then ultimately, God sent this last miracle to purchase freedom for his people. And what he did is he sent this angel of death to the land. But before the angel came, he said to his people, he got his people together and said, hey, this angel is coming over the land and what it's going to do is it's going to kill every firstborn male in every home here in the land unless you do this. Then he gave them instructions. I want you to take an innocent, unblemished, perfect lamb and I want you to kill it and I wanted you to take its blood and put it over the doorposts of your home for your household. And so that when this angel comes, what's going to happen is he will see that blood and he'll see that that blood has purchased you guys' freedom and the angel is going to pass over your home and continue on. And that's exactly what happened. On into the middle of the night, there's this loud cry that goes out into the land as the Egyptians wake up and realize that they've lost all these lives. Pharaoh calls Moses and the leaders in and says, go. And their freedom is purchased by the blood of these innocent lambs. Well, little did the the disciples realize that they're eating this Passover meal that signifies all of that. 
with the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus is there with them. They don't realize that within a few hours, his innocent, perfect blood is going to be shed so that any who would cling to him, who would claim him, that his blood would be put over the doorposts of their hearts so that when the angel of death visits us, even us, it would pass over us, that our sins wouldn't be counted against us, that our freedom can be purchased by the innocent Lamb of God, Jesus. And it's such a beautiful and powerful picture. In the ultimate act of humility, Christ became our Passover Lamb. It took humility for him to do that. You've got to realize that. You've got to see that. And I want to make that emphatically clear because we're talking about humility this morning. So let's go to Philippians chapter 2 really quickly because I want to show you how he did this. Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. This is such a rich text, guys. This is awesome. I love it. Philippians 2 verse 5 says this. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. So this is an instruction, and it's about to tell us the attitude of Christ. Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him. And gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Powerful scripture. Jesus was humbled and he now is supreme. How did he do that? You see, Jesus won the war to love God and to love people for us by emptying himself. Verse 7 there in Philippians 2, he emptied himself. Verse 8, he humbled himself. And in emptying himself, he became our Passover lamb. So yes, there is a war for our hearts. There's a war over what we will love and what we will serve. But Jesus has won the victory. That's what I want us to see here this morning. Yes, you're called to humility, but you can't do it. You need Jesus. As I was thinking about this, I I pictured a scene in the story um, of Lord of the Rings. There's this scene, this incredible scene where, or several scenes, a whole segment of the story, where in the two towers, the forces of good are kind of kept up in this fort, Helm's Deep. They're taken there and they're trying to just survive against the horde of evil. And Gandalf, one of the heroes of the story, he comes and he tries to make sure everything's right and ready to go. He gives them commands. He gives them instructions. And then he goes and leaves to try and find reinforcements. And so the next thing that plays out is this horde, this evil horde that comes against them and just batters them. And right when you think that all hope is lost... All of a sudden, Gandalf comes riding in on this white horse. It's like this incredible scene. And he brings victory in there. And I see this painting out in several ways. Firstly, Gandalf gives them instructions. Just as Christ has given us instructions, he said, yes, love, be humble. But he didn't just leave us there and say, well, 
Figure that out by yourselves. He rides in for our victory. Such a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. So now instead of seeing our lack of humility, God, when he looks at us, if we are in Christ, sees Christ's ultimate humility. He passes over, if you want to use that language, he passes over our lack of love and our lack of humility. Because of Christ's victory, we can now own our brokenness. We can own our lack of loves. We can bring him the tatters of our lives. You see, I've stood up here this morning and said, yes, we need to be humble. Yes, we need to love. But we really can't do that. And what I'm saying is, yes, let's bring that, those broken embers of our life to Christ and say, here you go. Because as we bring them to Jesus, he restores us and loves us. And as he loves us, we are filled with the fuel to love and to be humble. As we remain in him, real humility will be produced as we experience his real love. Let me say that one more time. As we remain in him, that's the key, real humility will be produced as we experience his real love. So the call this morning is not, hey, Christian, you better do a good job of being humble. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. You better do that too. The call is to remain in Christ because as you soak in his love, you will experience love yourself. You will experience genuine, true humility towards your fellow men. We see this actually in the life of Peter. You see, Peter's an interesting character. I know I keep coming back to him, but he plays such a prominent role here. Peter's an interesting guy because Jesus gives these instructions that we've just read. Jesus is like, okay, you need, as I've served you, you guys need to serve one another. And then he goes on and says, says the stuff about loving one another right after that. Peter says, well, I'll never deny you. Pride. Jesus has just told him to be humble, and he comes out with this pride-filled statement. And that continues to bear bad fruit. What happens next? Well, I'll give you a couple of secrets here, what we're going to come up on. Peter goes on and does deny Jesus and deserts Jesus. Jesus dies and is raised to life again. By the way, that's what happens next week when we talk about it. Um, Jesus is raised to life again, but as he does that, he then comes and he seeks out Peter. Peter. Such a beautiful picture of reconciliation. He seeks out Peter, seeks to be reconciled with him. And as he does that... There's this awesome thing that happens in Peter's life. As he remains in Christ and in Christ's love, God uses him powerfully for his kingdom. As he remains in Christ, he is filled up with love so that he becomes the spokesman for the early church. He is the one that God uses in an incredibly powerful way to bring thousands of people to come to know Christ. But it's only once he is in Christ and when he's finding his love and his place in him. As I think about Peter's life, I think about that verse 35 that we've already read several times, and I'm going to read one more time for you. It says this, By this, that is your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. Peter displayed that in his life. As he started to be fueled by Christ's love to love the people around him, It was a witness for the gospel, and that can be true for our lives too. So I'm not saying be humble 
And, you know, that's what it takes to be a good Christian. What I'm saying is we need to experience the love of Christ because as we do that, we will be humble. But not just that, God will be glorified. It will be a witness, a testimony to who God is, the greatness and the goodness of God. I've got two questions for you in a very specific order. The first one is this. And I want you to contemplate these for the next couple of minutes. Are you receiving the love of Christ? First things first, before you answer the second question, you've got to answer this question. Are you receiving the love of Christ? That's going to be answered or have to be answered differently for some of you. Some of you are Christians, but you're not walking in his love today. And so my challenge to you is find yourself in that place where you're like, Lord, I'm looking for satisfaction, meaning, and fulfillment in these other things today. Lord, I give myself back to you. I, I want to find my love, my purpose, my fulfillment in you. Others of you are not Christians. You're not walking with God at all. And so this question, when I ask you, are you receiving the love of Christ today? My question is, for the first time, would you receive the love of Christ That is the best decision you can make. And even in these next few seconds and minutes, you can make the best decision you will ever make to give your life to Christ, to say, here, here's my brokenness. Take it and fill me with your love. That would be the best decision you could make. Really, literally, biggest decision you'll ever make. So the first question is that, are you receiving the love of Christ? Is he your Passover lamb? Second question is this, and it has to come second. Whose feet is he calling you to wash? And I'm going to add a word, today. Whose feet is he calling you to wash today? Let's get practical. If you look at this text, it makes it pretty clear that it's not a question if you're a disciple of if you're called to wash somebody's feet. And we're not talking about literal washing of feet. We're talking about humbly loving and serving. It's not a question of if you're called to that, it's who are you called to do that to. And remember that when you're washing somebody's feet, they may be stinky. It may not feel good. It may not look nice. It may not be what you want to do. But as you're filled with the love of Christ, you're filled with his love, with his compassion, with his humility, you and I can love and serve the world around us. And as we do that, it's going to point people towards King Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you that your word is true. Thank you that even though we are broken people who just can't seem to get things together by ourselves, God, we can't be humble. By ourselves, we cannot be loving. But by your grace, by your goodness, you can fill us with your love because you were the ultimate sacrifice for us. Thank you for that, Lord. May there be joy in our hearts. May there be a weight that comes off our shoulders when we realize, yeah, I can own my brokenness. I can own the fact that I'm not a good person. Lord, may there be a release and a freedom in this room even today as we worship and as we respond. And God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, speak very specifically to each of us about who it is that you are calling us to love and to serve, to wash the feet of. But God, may that 
thought come after you have made us absolutely secure in our identity in you? So right across this room this morning, God, may we find ourselves secure in you first. And then from there, God, would you lead us to love and to serve. Thank you. Amen.